I have a few rules for myself this morning for this message. Rule number one, keep telling myself, keep it simple. Rule number two, don't be a heretic. Next, help everyone here not to be heretics. Next, explain some deep and awesome and important things about God and what it means that he is Trinity and the love of the Trinity and what this means. At the same time, avoid heresy and keep it simple. So we're going to need to pray about that. (laughs) So let's do that now. Father God, we thank you so much. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that we have been taught and instructed by your word. And we ask that you would be speaking to us today. Uh, We ask that the Holy Spirit would uh, be with the the proclamation of your word, applying it to hearts. But Lord, we ask that you um, would help us to see you in a way that that is biblical and right, according to who you are and what you have revealed. And Lord, help us to, uh, to avoid wrong thoughts about you, to avoid uh, heresy or anything that would disfigure our, who you are or blaspheme who you are, Lord God. But help us to think through these things, to realize more and more what an awesome and amazing God of love that you are and how this matters for our lives, for for. Christmas, for outreach, for for everything, Lord God. So we ask that you be with us. Give everyone here understanding. Guide us, guard us from error, Lord God, and help us see you. In the name of Jesus Christ, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. Let's read first from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, just to start off. Some great passages here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Great passage. I wish we could keep going with, their, with that passage and those thoughts. But the part that I want to pull out, because if, if we went further, we'd also see in uh, verse 13, it talks about the Holy Spirit By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So even in just this passage, we've already seen the Father, we've seen the Son, we've seen the Holy Spirit. We see the Father giving the Son. We'll talk more about that next week for the Christmas service. Uh, We see the Spirit being given as well. But the first thing, the first part of this that I want to pull out and have us focus on is what it says there in verse 8. That it says, God is love. And John says that there in verse 8, he says it again in verse 16, God is love. And with that sentence right there, that statement, that truth, I have just given you a compelling reason to believe in the Trinity, that God is Trinity. 
And I know the past two weeks we've been talking about other reasons, but even if you just had that God is love and spent time thinking about that, that would help you realize that, yep, it makes sense. God is Trinity. And, and that phrase couldn't make sense if God was merely one being and merely one person. As one person has said, God is love because God is a trinity. We're going to see what this means. Because we talk about God is, is love. This is, saying, this, is, this is of God's essence. This is, this is who God is, that he is love. It's not just that he has love as an add-on. It's not that one day he became loving. If God is love and has always been love, there are implications for this. And so we're going to be thinking these through. We have three uh, main uh, statements that we're going to try and unpack in order as we think about this. But as we think about this, uh, the Trinity and the love of the Trinity, uh, the first thing to realize, we've been talking about this, uh, but that there are eternal relationships within the Trinity. Eternal relationships between the persons in the Trinity. So although there is equality between the three persons, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's also an eternal order of relationships, an eternal ordered relationship between those persons. So just as review, last week we talked about, uh, showed this diagram which uh, has been called the shield of the Trinity and gives us kind of an uh, idea of uh, what we're saying here, that there's one God there's, one, one, there's only one God. We are, we are monotheists. We don't believe in, in three gods. There's one God, but the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So this one God exists as three persons. These persons are co-eternal. They are co-equal. They have always existed. They've always been this way. There was not a time in the past where God split into three. There was some kind of you know, fracture that this happened. This has always been how God is, as these three persons. And we also said it's important to distinguish the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the, the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. The three persons are distinct. So we avoid the heresy of modalism, that God is some kind of shapeshifter, moving from Father to Son to Holy Spirit, or something along those lines. And we said this is, this is beyond our capacity to really totally grasp. We accept what the Bible teaches as, as true, but it is, it is beyond us. Uh, but this is part of the amazing truth of, of who God is. And so within these, these three persons, what we're seeing is that they relate to each other. We've seen this in, in Scripture in different places. They, they speak to each other. We're going to see more. Uh, we've seen already that they, there's a sending relationship between them. And there's other distinctions. But there's an ordered relationship. We can talk about a first person of the Trinity and a second person of the Trinity, and a third person of the Trinity. And we're going to see that these are not, when we talk about that, that's not an arbitrary thing. As if one day uh, they decided, well, we've got to figure out who's first and second and third, and let's, I guess uh, we'll, because we're, we're equal, but we'll pull names out of a hat or something, and, oh, look at, hey, I got, I got number one. That's not how it worked. There's something kind of essential and, and built in to the relationship between the persons, why it makes sense that the Father is the first person, the Son is the second person, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. 
And there have been debates about this through church history. And there are things in church history that, that help us to clarify and understand these things. And even at times when there was somebody that uh, challenged these truths with, uh, with heresy, uh, the church was forced to really think about these things and grapple with them. And even though you know, this, the writings that came after the scripture, they're not inspired in the same way that, uh, they're not inspired, it's not like the Bible, but we'd be foolish to ignore some of these things because there's a lot of helpful things that we can receive uh, from Christians that went uh, before us. Some of this happened um, in the early like 300s when there was a, a, a church leader named Arius, and Arianism is uh, derived from him. But this guy Arius denied that there was this equality between the three persons of the Trinity. He denied that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were really, were really equal. And he latched on to certain statements that, well, if the Father is Father and he uh, begat the Son, that must mean that the Son uh, came into existence at a certain period of time. And so Arius was teaching certain things like that the Son was a created being, that the Son came into being from nothing. At one point, the Son just didn't exist, and God had to create him. He had to make him. That there was once when he was not, and he was not before he came into being. And he also taught that, that God, the Father, the Father was not always God the Father. That God was not always a Father when God was God alone, he wasn't father yet until he created the son. Then he became father. So for Arius, yeah, Jesus, or the, the second person, the son of God, um, is higher than every other created thing. But Arius taught that he was still something that God made. He made him first and then made everything else through him. But he still came into being at a um, point in time, so to speak. And so the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea, uh, it's now in what's uh, Turkey, uh, was called together, and they had Christian leaders from everywhere. They had like 318 bishops that came together to deal with this question. They met in the year 325. And there's actually a connection, I'll tell you here, with, with Christmas that's coming up. Kind of an amusing little thing. Because uh, there was somebody, um, supposedly at the, the Council of Nicaea, um, who was a bishop named, named Nicholas. And uh, if he later became known in church history as Saint Nicholas. And if you think of Saint Nicholas, he was also um, known as a reputation for uh, secretly giving gifts to people that had uh, in need. And so you think of Saint Nicholas, and you, you say that kind of fast and sloppy over time, Saint Nicholas, Saint Nicholas, Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus, Santa Claus. And so really he was the, the original Santa Claus and the derived from that. Uh, but there's, there's a story, and uh, we don't know 100% you know, how if the truth of it is, but I want to believe it's true. Uh, but that at the Council of Nicaea, uh, that Nicholas was hearing Arius uh, say things against the deity of Christ, and he became so uh, infuriated by this that he just lost his cool, and he got up, and he punched Arius in the face. You'll never look at Santa Claus the same way. Never <laughs> in fact, as, you know, for all the things that the internet has provided, I think uh, with this background, one of uh, my favorite little memes that is out there is, has to do with uh, St. Nicholas. 
saying, I came to give presents to kid and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents. <laughs> now, disclaimer here. Don't go around punching people, okay? That's, not what, I, that's what I'm saying. And if the story is true, then uh, Nicholas did get in trouble for this. They said, yeah, okay, you, this isn't the way to be handling things. And uh, according to the, the story, if it's true, he actually got uh, put into, uh, put behind bars for a little bit. Uh, but so there's, there's something satisfying about the fact of somebody actually caring for truth and for the honor of Christ. But still, don't punch people, okay? But at Nicaea, they ended up condemning Arius, and they wrote what's called the Nicene Creed. Again, this is not scripture, but it's, I think it's very helpful, and we'd be foolish to ignore something like this. So the original Nicene Creed from 325, let me put at least the, the main part of it up on the screen so you can see this. This is their conclusion that they came to. So they, they condemned the views of Arius, and they, they wrote this and said, We believe in one God, so monotheism, just one God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. So they're going to talk about the Father first, then they're going to talk about the Son. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what is, what is the Son of God like? What do they say? Begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Some really important things there. Of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate, becoming man, suffered and rose on the third day, ascended to the heavens, and will come to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. And after that, it lists um, some condemnations of the views of, of Arius. And you see at the end there, it's, uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't get a whole lot of attention right here in the, the 325 version. There was another council held a little bit later in Constantinople in 381, and they have a revised version of the Nicene Creed. And usually if churches recite the Nicene Creed, it's the revised version from 381. And there they add more about the Holy Spirit. And uh, in that they add, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is together worshipped and together glorified. And the phrase, and the Son, was actually uh, inserted kind of later on by the church in the West. But if we look at this, the main part of the original Nicene Creed, we see some things here. They're saying that there's one God, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and then they use this language of begotten from the Father. And what does this mean? That somehow he is, he is, he is the Son of the Father. He is begotten. And it, it does have some kind of idea that he has his, his origin. He, has his, uh, he is caused by the Father. But they're very clear in what they say as well, that he is, he is God. He is God from God. God the Son is from God the Father. He is light from light true God from true God, and then it uses the phrase begotten, not made. So they said, we, we don't agree with Arius that he was created, that he was made, that there was a time when he didn't exist or something like that. But this idea of being begotten, being from the Father, this is eternal. So that the Son is eternal Son, 
And the Father is eternal Father. Now, we're going to try and unpack this and explain a little bit, but we just have to also just remember, too, that this is beyond our understanding exactly how this works. And this is, this is different from anything else we experience because we think of what it means for, for me or, or maybe you to be a father. There are going to be aspects of this that are the same and parts that are different, okay? Because um, I'm looking at my kids uh, right here, and there was a time when they didn't exist, and I became their father, but there was, they had a, a time when they were conceived and then born, and before that, they, they didn't exist. Maybe in the, the mind and the plan of God, but that's about it. Uh, but not their real existence. Where it's different with the Son of God, because he always existed, but in a sense, also, he is still from the Father. There's a distinction, a personal relationship uh, between the two. Another thing that they said, this was a big deal, it says he is of one substance with the Father. In Greek there, it's homoousion. It literally means one substance. And there was debates over one letter because there were some there that wanted to put a iota, a Greek I, in between the two O's, then it would be homoousion. And if you did that, you think, what's one little letter? Why do we argue about, you know, little tiny things like that? But if you change that, it changes the word from meaning of the same substance to meaning of like substance. That the son is, it's like the father. And they said, no, that's not good enough. And they said the Arius and the heretics, they could still, they could still kind of squint and, you know, sign that and say, yeah, you know, he's, he's like the father, he's close enough. They wanted to emphasize, no, he is of the same substance. He is not something different. He is not, a, you know, even a, a shade of a step down from the being of the Father and, what, and who the Father is. So again, we believe in, in one God of one substance, one nature, one essence, but somewhere within that one being, there are three persons. Not three individuals, not three human beings. We, it, they're more united than like three guys in a club. That's not what it's like. But still, within it, there's, there's three uh, divine persons uh, that, that can relate to each other in this way. So you think of this phrase, begotten, not made. And this is what sometimes, this is also called eternal generation. The eternal generation of the Son. These are things that sometimes you know, we, we don't talk about as much, but it's really helpful concepts. And so why do, they, why do they talk about this? Why do they talk about the, this idea of eternal generation or being eternally begotten? Part of what it means, it helps us to realize that the Father is Father because he is the eternal Father of the eternal Son. When Jesus sent his Son into the world, he sent his Son. He didn't send uh, just a generic other person of the Trinity who later became son into the world. God so loved the world that he sent his son. He was already son even before God sent him into the world. That relationship of father and son already existed. And so that's really important. And there's plenty of verses that that indicate that. (laughs) And you can't be a father unless, unless you have son. If God was not, if he didn't have a son, he wouldn't be father. So the fact that it's, it's required, that the father has always been the father, the son has always been the son. 
You need both of those to have that type of relationship. And yet there is a sense in which the Son is of the Father or from the Father that's uh, considered biblically, uh, theologically correct, but not in the sense of being created. We also get this idea of eternal generation, we said from the names, Father and Son, and what they imply, from the language of sending, that it's always the, the Father that sends the Son. It's a, there's something about this that's one way. You don't see it the other way around. You don't see the Son sending the Father. There's this kind of ordered relationship. The Son sends, or the Father sends the Son. And then there's verses that talk about the, the Father, and other verses talk about the Son, both sending the Spirit as well. It's kind of a, a kind of a one direction that this happens. There's also passages such as 1 John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Hey, think about that. It's saying the Father has life in himself, and it's saying that the Son does have life in himself as well. But it's because the Father has granted him to have life in himself. So the Son is God and has life in himself, but it's also sourced from the Father. And we've said in the same way the Holy Spirit is said to proceed from the Father and from the Son. We don't say that the Spirit was begotten because that has to do with father-son relationships. And Jesus is the only begotten Son. So instead they use the phrase proceeds from the Holy Spirit. And um, you see this in John 14, 15 through 17, John 15, 26 through 27. And by the way, the church had a big split about a thousand years ago over whether the, the Son proceeds just from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son. And you're thinking, well, that's kind of, uh, why is that a big deal? But it would, became such a big deal that the, uh, the Western church uh, that was in Rome and the Eastern church, which was in Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Istanbul, not Constantinople. Um, they split. And uh, over the fact that the, the, the Roman church, they added, and from the Son, uh, to, the, to the Nicene Creed. And the Eastern church said, we don't agree, and you can't, just, you can't just throw that in there. That was something we agreed on together. All right. I think one thing that's helped me to kind of wrap my mind around this a little bit better was something I remember C.S. Lewis had something similar to this in his book, Mere Christianity. And he talked about um, imagining like, like books stacked on each other. So let's think of it like this. Imagine you have, um, you have three books, and these books are absolutely identical. All right? So now, I mean, these books, they're the same book. There might be little flaws and, you know, different things. The paper might be different. But imagine they're absolutely identical. You know, there's, there's no difference at all. Now imagine you have one book, you know, that is, that is here, and it's at the base. And you have another book that's on top of it. Now for us, I had to put down the first book first and the next book on top of that, but imagine that instead there's a bottom book and the other, we'll say this is book one, and then book two is, is resting on book one. But imagine that it's always been like this, that there was never a point in time where, the, where book two was 
was, was dropped onto book one, but they've just always been like this in this relationship. Now imagine there's a, uh, there's a third book. And so if you have this, you have, you have book one that's at the base, and it's not being supported by another book. Okay, you have to ignore the stool. And you have book two that it's being supported by the book below it. And then you have book three, which is being supported by both books below it. So if you think of it like that, you have three identical persons within the Trinity. There's an order to them because of the relationship. The first person, second person, and third person. And the, the first person supports the second and the third. And the second, along with the first, support the third person. And if you didn't have this ordered kind of relationship, you know, if you wouldn't know which is which because they just seem the same. But if they're in, in an order like this, you can have a first person, second person, and a third person. And to me, that, that illustration, uh, every illustration breaks down at some point, but I think it's helpful to, to visualize kind of this, this order in the relationships in the persons within the Trinity. So the persons are, the three persons are distinguished by their relationships. When you say the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten by the Father. This is eternal generation. And the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds, it's the terminology, uh, from the Father and from the Son. But they've always been like this, eternal in being but with an ordered relationship, and the person of the Son rests on the person of the Father, etc. So the Father is the, it's okay to say, the source, the cause, the origin of, of the Son, but in an eternal sense. Not that it, it, it's never been different than this. The person, the Father, I've said, is, is the fountain or, or source of, of the others, but in such a way that there's, there's no drop-off. They're, they're the same in equality. They're the same in substance. They, they share one substance, not three different substances. And here's the thing. If God was only one and not three, he would not be the personal God that he is. So we talk about these relationships and these different things, but here's, here's where we're starting to get to the payoff. It means that God is a personal God. And if he was not three, if he was just one, he wouldn't be a personal God because there's a time this world didn't exist. And how do you really be a person if there's, there's no one else out there to relate to? if there's no one else there to interact with. And here's the thing. For us, we need to realize that relationships, they're essential for personhood. We're created in God's image. One alone can't, in a sense, really be a person. Relationships are crucial for us as well. It is not good for one to be alone. You think of people being put in solitary confinement, you know, locked away from anyone else, and I know there's parents here that think that'd be kind of nice for a while. You know, we can think of some alone time. It's good for a while, but eventually you go crazy. It, it becomes torture to be cut off from relationships with other people. God did not experience that. That God, even before he created the world, there were three persons in, this re- in relationship with each other. This brings us to the second big point, building on this. There is eternal love and joy within the Trinity. 
You have three persons within the one being of God. They're in relationship to each other. God is love. Remember, we saw that in Scripture. God is love. This is of the essence of God. God did not start being a God of love at some point. But if there was no one for God to love, how could he be a God of love? If God was only one and not a trinity, he would have to make something else in order for him to to love something else. But if God is trinity, if if there are three persons eternally within the Godhead, God didn't need to create this world. He had uh, others within himself to, to love. So that's how, how the phrase that God is love points to the fact that God is trinity. God, in love, God is love requires God to be more than one eternal person. Love requires someone else to love. I saw something recently about the actress Emma Watson. Uh, she's from the, the Harry Potter movies. And really, she's, she's like 30 now. If that doesn't, just to make you feel old. Okay. But I guess back in November, she announced that um, she isn't about her relationship status. She said, I'm not single, I'm self partnered. <laughs> she's not she's self partnered instead of single. Uh, okay, it, it, takes an ho- it takes a Hollywood actress to say something that's stupid. Okay. You can't be self partnered, that doesn't make sense. You need a partner to be partnered. If you're not, you're just, you're single, that's okay. But you're not self-partnered. That's a stupid made-up thing. You can't be a partnered without a, without a partner. And here's the thing. God always had this, this, this three-person partnership within the Trinity. And so there was always love within the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father from all eternity. You need at least two to love so they can love each other. Okay? And God is love even before he created everything else. And in a way, um, Augustine described the Trinity at one point as kind of the, the lover, the one that is loved, and the love as the bond between them and there being kind of three. But you need at least two for there to be a love relationship. But even if you have two, it could be just kind of this real self-absorbed thing. You ever see two people when they're, they're into like, you know, uh, they're, they're not married but they're dating and they just, the rest of the world fades away and they just become just obsessed with each other in a kind of weird, unhealthy way. Um, so, it, it, it's, it, I saw it all the time at college. Uh, but... Um, so you need, you need the two, but you know what? I think there's a, a further way where love can be even perfected even further. Love requires someone else to love, but I think there's a, a perfecting even more. And I think you'll get this from your relationships. When there is even someone else outside of the two of you or something else uh, that you love, that you can focus on together. Maybe it's a shared interest that you have. If you have that where two people, instead of just, well, we love each other and we have our dis- different lives, but there's something else we do together or we minister together we help other people. Uh, when, it, when a child comes along, that is often something, there's another thing that the, your mutual love for the third doesn't pull you apart, it pulls you closer together. And my hope would be for, for every married couple that's here, that at the very least, at, and this would be the most important thing, your love for God is that thing that draws you closer together. That it's not just you, I love you, you love me, that's it, that's it. 
but that's like together you are you are loving God and as you love God together you are going to grow closer together that's why you, you those of you that are not married yet don't even think about marrying someone that doesn't love Jesus if you love Jesus the, the most important thing for you is to, to marry someone else that that loves Jesus because otherwise you're going to link yourself with someone that doesn't love what you love the most? But if you both love Jesus together, that's going to draw you together. And so within the Trinity, do they have that? Well, yeah, they could because there are three within the Trinity. And so love is perfected when not, not just the two love each other, but there's a third that they can love together. And so because God is Trinity, the, the Father loves the Son, and together they love the Holy Spirit. And the Father and the Spirit, together they love the Son. And in each of them, they have this just uh, mutual and reciprocal relationship of not only loving each other, but together loving the third one in the Trinity. So they had a good thing going for all eternity, even before creating this world. There are many passages in Scripture that let us see the eternal love and joy that has taken place inside the Trinity. I'm going to read you some of these. I'm not going to give you the verses. They're all from the Gospel of John. Uh, mostly from John 14 through 17, so you could find them. And, well, I'd be pleased uh, beyond belief if you just spent a lot of time just reading and rereading John 14 through 17 because it's, it's just an awesome passage. So let me just read you some of these. You can sit back and just take this in. Most of these, well, I think these are all from the lips of Jesus. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's also a lot of verses that talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit glorifying each other. You think what glorifying is, it means they think each other is great. They love each other. They're, they're exalting, lifting each other. I mean, you glorify that which you think is awesome. And you know what? They, it'd be wrong for them not to think the other persons of the Trinity are awesome and the most amazing thing. I mean, they are. I mean, that's what we do when we worship, and they just, they just recognize that. And there's so many verses in Scripture, too. I'm going to read you some of these. These are also from Gospel of John. The one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in this there is no falsehood. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus saying that God the Father seeks the glory of the Son. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. 
And when Jesus had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This next one is about the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Christ, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The last one is from John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. There's some deep, awesome, awesome passages. And you see there, it's talking about the love within the Trinity. But you also see it's them desiring to share this love outside the Trinity, for this is spill over. See, God was not bored or lonely before he created the world. There was so much love, there was so much joy and happiness even just within the Trinity. And he could have decided, we got a good thing going, we can keep it to ourselves. This is, this is great. But you know what, there was something about who God is that he chose, he decided he wanted to let that spill over. And so he created the world not because he needed to, not because he needed someone else to love, but he created it so that there would be others that could enter into that love that could join him in delighting in God and who he is and the ultimate source of joy and happiness and everything else. So here's the thing. God created this world to share his love and joy. Why did God create the world? That's why. He created it so he could share it, so other people also could know this. That's why you're created in the image of God, so that you can recognize this. So you're, you're equipped in enough ways that you can, you can know God, you can value him, you can treasure him with your heart. You know, in the way that, you know, our, our, our kitty cat can't do that. Kitty cat is not equipped enough to, to know and love and experience and, and treasure God. But you are. Because you're created in his image. You're created as a person with enough that you, that you can relate to him. You're created for his glory for his joy to enter into his happiness, for God to share this. He had a good thing going all by himself. We talked about the aseity of God several weeks ago. God doesn't need anything else. But God freely chose to create in order to share his eternal love and joy with others outside of himself. We were created to experience the love and joy and glory that is eternally within the Trinity. Let me read you a quote. This is by Michael Reeves. He has a great book called Delighting in the Trinity. 
recommend it. One point he writes, the very nature of God is to be effusive and bountiful. The father rejoices to have another beside him and he finds his very self in pouring out his love. Creation is about the spreading, the diffusion, the outward explosion of that love. This God is the very opposite of greedy, hungry, selfish emptiness. In his self-giving, he naturally pours forth life and goodness. He is then the source of all that is good. And that means he is not the sort of God who would call people away from happiness and good things. Goodness and happiness are to be found with him, not apart from him. See, true love and joy are found only within the triune God. And that is what you were created for. You were created to know that glory. You were created to enter into that. And when we think about sin and what that is, sin is when we turn away from that, what we were created for. Instead of seeking our joy and our fulfillment and our everything, and the God that made us and the good gifts that he has, but recognizing that they're from him and giving glory to him. And so we turn away. We turn away to other things. Or we curve in on ourselves and become self-focused. I mean, the more sinful you are, the more self-focused you're going to be. And the more self-focused you are, the more sinful you're going to be. Sin has a way of just, you just curl in on yourself like this. Or you, instead of being outward-focused, we're just, we're just inward-focused and not focused on God. Next week, we're going to talk more about this because we're going to talk about what, is, what, did Jesus, what did God have to do to rescue us from this situation? We've seen it already in the verses. God sent his son to do this, to, to rescue us. And I'll say this because maybe you're not here next week. God, he has sent his son. And he sent his son so that, that you can be saved through him. In the passage we read at the very beginning, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. It started in the Trinity, it was spread out to us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That you can be saved by turning away from, from uh, right now you're turned away from God, turn, instead turn your back on sin and, and turn to him. Receive Jesus Christ, trust him alone as the one that died for you, as, you, as your righteous savior, the, one, the only one that can give you hope. God sent his son into the world to rescue us from this problem. An application with this, We've been talking about being outward focused all year long. That's what the Trinity is like. God could have focused on, we'll just care about fellowship. And we have this little, great little triangle of, of love and joy and fellowship going, and we'll just keep it in here. You know, we're tight, we're family, and that's good. How about you? Do you just, are you just about yourself? Are you just about your close-knit circle, your close-knit family or whatever? Or are you willing to let the love of God overflow, to spread out, to, to explode to the people around you that, that need the love of God in their life, that need to be called into a relationship with the, with the source, the one that made them, the one that can give them life and, and happiness and joy. Fellowship is good, but to be like the Trinity, we need an outward focus. Aren't you glad that God didn't keep his joy to himself? Rejoice in it. And bring it to others. Let's pray. 
triune God, we thank you and we praise you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the deep and infinite eternal love that you have within yourself. And we thank you so much that you did not keep that to yourself, but that we were created to enter into that joy, that that is the reason that we exist and that's where we can find our ultimate fulfillment, Lord God. Lord God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us from turning away from you in our pride and our rebellion and, and anything we do that turns our back on you, Lord God. May our hearts be turned towards you. May we trust in you and trust in Jesus Christ as the one that was sent to pay the price for our salvation, going to the cross and rising again for our justification. Lord, we thank you for your work in our life. We ask that the power of your spirit would keep us and it would turn us to you more and more. Turn us away from, from evil things of this world and help us to love you as the source of every good thing, Lord God, and as the one in whom there is life in himself. We praise you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.